Generation Church, based in the beautiful Rex Theater in the heart of downtown Pensacola, Florida. Our hope is that today's teaching will encourage and equip you to be firm in faith, to fulfill the call of God in your life, and to finish well. Grab your Bible, open up your notes app, and let's dive in. Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord." In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pastor Adam. Good morning, generation. How's everybody doing? I do hope that we are able to tune in this morning. Um, I've really enjoyed up till now just everything we've been looking at. We're now in chapter two. We're taking our time. We're studying the Bible, and I think it's just so great when we can do that as a church. I hope you have your notes. If you have your outlines or if you don't have that, you can have your phones as long as just to take notes, not check your social media. Um, But just really tune in because I think that uh, the Holy Spirit wants to talk through this very important passage. So just for a little bit of context, again, we're going through the letter uh, by Paul to the Ephesians. He's writing to the Ephesus church uh, while he's in a Roman prison around 60 AD. And one of the problems that we find and that Paul finds in this church, and we'll understand why in, in a minute, is this a problem of disunity. And that's because there were Jews and Gentiles together in that church. And we're going to see how that rivalry was a, was a little raw, a little rough, and, and there was a lot of things to, to deal with. But Paul is pleading them both, saying the gospel is for both. Now, this applies to us today because I think we could all agree as well that today there is disunity sometimes to be found in the church. And if that's the case, it's usually for two reasons. And I'm not talking about disunity when it comes to essential things, but maybe uh, some, some things that, that aren't um, as, as necessary. And it's usually due to either cultural differences or maybe uh, some interpretation of Scripture. And as a result, there can sometimes be a little bit of disunity um, and This is just an example of what happens even just in the world. I mean, think about all the attempts for peace, right? Peace is truly man's unattainable pursuit throughout the years, especially if it's done by man. 
Um, I read somewhere that in 1500 BC, from 1500 BC to 850 AD, there's been over 7,500 failed peace missions. And I use that word peace mission because I want to talk this morning about the great peace mission that Jesus undertook. That's the title for this, me- this message, the great peace mission. And as you look at the text, if you look at it on your outline, you'll see I, I put a bold on, on three specific words. And it's really the three parts of this uh, passage as I look at it closely. It's really demarked by these words. It starts with therefore, then it goes to but now, and then it ends with so then. So therefore, we're going to look at what we were. We're going to see that we were separated with God, from God. And but now is the great news of what Christ did, that he reconciled us to himself and in that one to one another. And finally, we're going to see what happens after Paul says, so then, and that's where we see what we are now, what we are called to be, his plan all along to make us one. So that's to kind of give you guys a little plan for this morning. So as we look at the first one, what we were, therefore, it's this big problem that that is here, which is the problem of separation. Paul wants the Ephesians to know it. When you see that word, therefore, you know that it has to do with something before that, right? So we've been seeing through the first two chapters, and Paul is wanting the Ephesians to know all that they have in Christ. We looked at all the riches, everything that we have in Christ. And then he insists, and each time we also mentioned it, that it's nothing that we did. It's nothing that we did. It's all by grace through faith. It's all God. And so in this passage, though, Paul switches things a little bit and he speaks specifically to the Gentiles. Now, what are Gentiles? Just to give a very uh, easy definition, a Gentile is someone that is not Jewish. So in that church, there were some that were Jews that trusted in Christ and Gentiles that trusted in Christ. So we're talking, now Paul is talking specifically to Gentiles, and I think this is kind of meaningful for us because chances are you fall in that category. I know that me, the German barbarian Swedish Viking roots that I have, I fall under that category. I would be a Gentile. So chances are you do too. And so the reason that this is so important for us to hear is that a lot of times what can end up happening, maybe even in the Western world, is to think that we're all that. Like we have this privilege. And Paul here is really saying, hey, remember. Don't forget. Therefore, remember what you were. Because pride is the downfall of everything, right? And so remember what you were. You were far away. But you were brought near by the blood of Christ. And so we we need to remember that. That we're the latecomers in God's great plan of redemption. In uh, verse 12, we read this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If there's one word to describe the Gentiles that Paul is saying here, it's that word without. We were without. Now what's interesting is the first one he names is something that everyone was without and that is without Christ. This is probably something that the Jews even had a hard time to hear in that church because they'd like to think that they were in some way favored. But Paul is reminding us we were all without Christ. Elsewhere, he reminds us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we were all without Christ, Jews, both Jews and Gentiles. But then now he's talking to the Gentiles and watch how now he gets very specific. And this is what the Gentiles were also without. We were without citizenship. 
See, whereas God's people received his laws and his blessings, we didn't have that before Christ. Uh, we were without covenant. Even though Gentiles, we, partic- we don't participate, we, we benefit from the, from the blessings that came from the covenant that God made with Abraham. We benefit from it, but we had no participation in it. It was between God and Abraham and Israel. Uh, there was no share for us in the sacrifices of Aaron and his sons. But see, all those things were something that was the then. It was then, it was a shadow, yet now we get the substance. Then it was the type. Now we get the reality. This is a reminder of what we studied in the book of Hebrews earlier on this year. But again, before starting to think that we're all that, we get it, we're new, we have everything new, everything's handed to us on a, on a golden plate, before we say all that, Paul is saying, don't forget, you were without. You were without Christ, without citizenship, without covenant, without God, without hope. And so that's, a, that's what, what he says here, without hope. You know, uh, there was a historian, uh, when looking at the ancient world, he, he really described it as just a great cloud of hopelessness. As you look through the years, and you've been to school, so you've heard all this, you've studied history, all the empty philosophies, all the traditions that have come and gone, all the powerless religions that have just disappeared over time. See, for the Gentiles, it's like a vicious cycle Their view of history is a progress to nowhere. That's how they viewed it. But in Christ now, Jews and Gentiles both have a same view of history that God gave his people Israel. And that is a view of history where we are on a march, on a journey towards God. Remember at the beginning of the year, we went through the Psalms of Ascent. And it's this journey towards God. And so now the words that God gave to Israel through the prophets, such as Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now in Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, this is a word for all his people, both Jews and Gentiles, reconciled. So see, the problem was separation. Now we come to the solution, and this was reconciliation. And it's demarked by those words. Oh, look at these words. But now, verse 13. Anytime you see those words, but now, in the Bible, pay attention. Because there's great hope and there's great truth to glean from. Especially when it's followed by, but now, in Christ. And so what we have in Christ, what we were is we were without Christ, we were without hope, but now we get the undeserved gift of God and all we can respond is, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did. We read verse 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So before we even look a little bit deeper into what Christ did, this reconciliation, we need to understand that there was a need for reconciliation. And that's because there was great hostility. It's interesting that Paul names this wall of hostility. I see a twofold hostility here in this passage where Paul is addressing the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and we're going to go a little bit in depth with that, but also on a greater measure, with a greater picture in mind, the hostility between God and sinners. So first, let's look at this 
hostility between Jews and Gentiles. There was great rivalry. We need to understand this so that it makes sense. There was great rivalry in the Ephesian church due to centuries of animosity. See, it's not just some little tiff, some little fight, some little disagreement. There were centuries of animosity between these two groups of people. Now, we know all sorts of rivalries, right, in our own uh, culture. Uh, I, I just named a few for fun. There's the Boston Red Sox against the New York Yankees. There's all, they always end up fighting on the field. Uh, you know, yesterday there was the Alabama game. I actually asked Pastor Adams, like, so what's the rival there? And he was like, uh, there's LSU, there's Auburn. Like, he gave a bunch, a bunch of them. Uh, poor poor uh, Alabama, Alabama fans, they have a bunch of rivals. Uh, but that's because they're really good. Um, then there's the, the, the rivalry of the iPhone users versus the Android users, right? Um, as I, an iPhone user, I have to remind myself that the green bubble is a person, right? <laughs> so uh, there's, there's that rivalry. There's the, the rivalry. Um, just a, a few weeks ago, my wife and I, we, uh, we, uh, our day off is Friday. And uh, up until two weeks, uh, our kids were mostly with us. There was one child still with us. And so we were never just the two of us. And uh, now we have that freedom of it where it's just us. And so we're like, well, what do we do? And hey, let's just try tennis for fun. And, um, and so then we found out that there's a great rivalry between these two groups, the pickleball players and the tennis ball players. Uh, so yeah, that's become a thing too. There's always these rivalries. Well, let me just say all that is so light, so different compared to this great rivalry between the Jews and the Gentiles. It was uh, rooted in a deep-seated hatred for both. In fact, it's kind of interesting when you see Paul, when he uses these words in verse 11, he says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. He's kind of poking the bear a little bit. He's being provocative here because those were insults. Like the circumcised would, would, would call someone, oh, you uncircumcised. And the uncircumcised would say, oh, you circumcised. And it was a big insult. And here, like Paul is saying, you know, lighten up a little bit. These things don't matter anymore. But it's hard for these people because of the years of animosity, of, of wars, of, of, of feelings hurt, and, and possibly even of, of great danger because there's a lot of uh, Gentile nations that oppose themselves to the people of Israel and vice versa. And so this rivalry, though, goes way back. And we don't have time this morning to, to go to the origin of it and like dig deep into that. It could be interesting. But I actually wanted to point out an example of what that hatred looked like. And you might be surprised when I suggest what book we're going to look at. It's the book of Jonah. You see, the book of Jonah is not just a tale of a whale. It goes much deeper than that. It's the story of a disobedient prophet that hated the Gentiles. And of all people, God calls him to the Gentiles, and he can't believe it. In fact, he's so mad at that that, I mean, he could have just stayed put and be like, la, 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 I'm not listening. He literally goes on a boat to go the opposite way to show his discontent towards what God is calling him to do. You guys know the story that he gets on the boat that's going the opposite way. He's disobeying God and there's a storm that comes and the crew on the ship, they don't know why. Jonah knows why. He confesses and they're like, what do we do? Your, your God is mad at you. What do we do? And Jonah says, throw me overboard. It's like he's, he's not even saying, take me to obey. He's like, I prefer to die than to talk to this people. That's how deep the hatred is. And so Jonah's thrown overboard and God has mercy on him and he brings a fish to swallow Jonah up and Jonah is stuck in this fish, in the belly of the fish for three days. 
And in that time, he finally repents. And he says those words, you know, if, if you can save me, I will go to the people that you want me to go to. I will go to the Ninevites. And so God uh, allows for that fish to spit Jonah out. And sure enough, Jonah obeys. He goes to Nineveh. And I can just imagine when he gets there, he's still very mad at this people. And he proclaims the good news, but probably a little bit half-heartedly. But that just goes to show the power of the Spirit of God. When these people hear what Jonah is saying, they are touched to their, to their core. They repent. And so now we go into Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. And what ends up happening is as they repent, this is Jonah's response. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And as I read it, I'm thinking, but Jonah, that's a good thing. And FYI, this, this character of, of God here is what saved you. Like you were, you were going to be gone, a goner and God rescued you and showed you grace. And so he goes on, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. I've seen the conversion of a people I didn't want. Take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? (laughs) Here, Jonah is just the anti-hero in the story. He's angry at God's mercy to the Gentiles. And God calls for the wicked to repent. And because the wicked repent, he saves them, though He knows how wicked they are, and they have been. Though he knows that in the very next generation, they go right back to their evil ways. Talk about the grace of God. But that generation was saved. And so as we look at that, we can tend to maybe be a little judgmental, and we kind of understand Jonah. I mean, look, they ended up going away from God again. In fact, that's the, that was the, it was the Gentiles that also ended up taking Israel and, and deporting Israel, right? You'd think, well, you know, maybe, maybe Jonah was right until we realize, hold on, hold on, Israel was no better. If you look at the history, Israel was no better. Israel is God's chosen people, right? The recipient of the divine revelation of God. They, they are the ones that participated in the methods of priesthood. They were the ones that heard the voice of God through their prophets. They were the people by whom the Savior would come. But they didn't understand one thing. They were part of God's plan. They were not an end in itself. They were part of God's plan. They were a means to an end. The end being God so loved the world. They were called to be a witness to the world. See, in Genesis 1 through 10 and 11, it's all geared towards humanity in general. It's only until Genesis 12 that there's the covenant between God and Abraham. And isn't it interesting, if you look closer, that covenant is basically saying you're going to be a father of many nations, not just Israel. But the Israelites held on to what was given to them, didn't want to share the wealth, share the riches that is now for us through Christ who reconciled both Jews and Gentiles to him. See, Abraham and Israel, they were meant to be a blessing. They were blessed to bless. That's why they were chosen. In the same way, now we, chosen by God, 
We're blessed to bless. They were supposed to be a light to the world. Instead, they became a little too much like the world. Before we judge too fast, we the church, we have that same mandate. We're blessed to bless. Let's be a light to the world. But here we see the Jews driven by pride and driven by hate. They would pray, pray things such as, thank God I'm not like this Gentile. Uh, one uh, Jewish author actually wrote this, Gentiles were created by God to be the fuel for the fires of hell. So we see this rivalry. We see this rivalry. And, and it's understandable that Paul is addressing this because uh, not long before that, Paul was in a huge debate with all the other apostles. You read this in Acts chapter 15, where really they were essentially asking or answering this question. Must a Gentile become a Jew to become a Christian? Do they have to follow all the traditions, all the laws? To which they replied, no. Why? As a reminder that both Jews and Gentiles are both saved by grace through faith. So we read verse 14, and this is what we see. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. For he himself is our peace. What I love about we're talking about the great peace mission of Jesus. What I like about this peace treaty is a lot of times when you have a treaty, you have uh, you know, different elements and compromises between the two. But here it's like, you know what, guys? You're both wrong. I'm your peace. I'm going to be the one that's going to come in and make the difference. And so he is the best component of this treaty is he himself. He himself is our peace. So Jesus Christ not only reconciled Jews and Gentiles together, but he re reconciled both to himself. And that's what he's saying here. How does this apply to us? Well, now, now reconciliation is possible in our relationships because we are reconciled with God. The real problem, I should say the real wall problem between people is not a wall between cultures, misunderstandings, political parties, whatever. The underlying problem is a wall between the fallen human race and a holy God. It's the wall of sin. That's the real problem. That's the root of the problem. That's the source of contention. And that was the source of contention between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now watch this. The, the, the Jews were mad because the Gentiles were constantly sinning. In other words, breaking the law, not respecting the law. Again, it's so ironic, so hypocritical because the Jews couldn't keep the law either. That was the whole point. That was why God chose the people of Israel to almost reveal to the world, listen, no one on their own can respect and obey the law. And so what did Jesus did? How did he become the one to bring peace, to be our peace? How did he fulfill the great peace mission? Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. He didn't say, okay, you guys are going to do this and you guys are going to do this. No, he fulfilled the law on our behalf. And where we broke the law, he bore the penalty of our failure to keep the law. And so all this should just bring us to our knees for the great grace of God. That's why Paul is saying, therefore, remember. Remember what you were. Sometimes it's, it's good to uh, know where we've been so we know where we're going. And, and we're going to show you, I'm going to show you where Paul is saying what we are now. But to understand what we are, we need to understand what Christ did and what we were. Now, but now, what Christ did is he reconciled us. How? Through his work on the cross. And that, that's worth taking a moment too, to just acknowledge 
the high and hefty price that that was, the cost was a big one. His blood. By fulfilling the demands of the law in his perfect life, but not just that, also bearing the curse of the law in his sacrificial death, that's how he removed the barrier of sin, the really biggest thing, the only barrier that really is the barrier of all barriers so that all could have access to God through him. That's what it says in verse 17 and 18. We read, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we've looked at the problem, which was separation, what we were. We looked at the solution, which is reconciliation, what Christ did. Now we're going to talk about the result of that. What do we do now? So let's go back to verse 14 and 15. We've read it a couple times already, so it's starting to get in our spirits. But it's so good to be reminded. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. We just talked about that. That he might create in himself one new man. He has made us both one, that he might create in himself one new man. Not only is he our peace, he made peace. And there's this idea of creating something new. He says one new man. There's actually two words for new in the Greek. There's the word neos, which is new in point of time. It's something that came into existence recently, that maybe arrived in the stores recently, but there's thousands of the same thing everywhere else. Think a toy in a factory, for example. But then there's another word in the Greek, it's the word kainos. And kainos is new in point of quality. It's a thing that brings into the world a new quality of thing which did not exist before. So it's a, it's a creation of something new, and, and even some uh, people who explain that word explain that it's, so, it's something that's new and improved. Something completely different, new, and improved. Well, Paul uses that word kainos here, meaning, this is what he's saying. Jesus brings together the Jews and the Gentiles, and from the both produces one new kind of person. It's not that Jesus makes all the Jews into Gentiles or all the Gentiles into Jews. He produces a new kind of person out of both. Now, the early church understood this. Uh, Chrysostom, an early church leader, says it's as if you melt down a statue of silver and a statue of lead, and the two come out gold, something new and improved. And that's what we have in Christ. What was before served its purpose, and it helped be a witness so that God's plan from the beginning for all humanity would be in effect. It was an example for us. And the early Christians under, understood this. They actually called themselves a new race. Some versions of this, this text will say a new humanity. It's one humanity. What is that humanity? It encompasses all who are in Christ. So this is where I'm getting at. We talked about the problem, the solution. The result is unification. Separation, reconciliation, unification. One of the key words in the book of Ephesians is that word one. We read verse 15, one new man in place of the two. Verse 16, both to God in one body through the cross. Verse 18, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so the result then, demarked by those words, so then you are, here we go, so then you are fellow citizens with the saints. 
Now he's bringing everything to a, a same level. Fellow citizens with the saints. In other words, one nation. Not, not one nation under God. I'm talking about one heavenly nation. One celestial nation with Christ as king. As a U.S. citizen, I am under the protection and the authority of our government. But as citizens of heaven, we are under his eternal protection and authority. Far beyond even our lives here on earth before eternity. Look at, look at what we get. 1 Peter 2, 9, 10. This is our identity as citizens of heaven. You are a chosen race. He's not talking to just the Jews. These are Jews and Gentiles, both reconciled in Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. And so he's bringing the two together, one new nation, fellow citizens with the saints. But not only that, we go on to read members of the household of God. In other words, one family. And this is, I love this improvement because as a citizen, I know about the king. But as a son, as a daughter, I know the king. There's a proximity, there's a relationship. I heard the story once of a, of a boy who's running to go into the courts to go see the king, and this soldier stops him and says, oh, you can't come in, uh, do not bother, don't interrupt your king. To which the little boy looks right at the soldier and says, he may be your king, he's my daddy, and he walks right through the door and goes and sits on the king's lap. That's the relationship that we have, members of the household of God. All those who've put their faith in Christ have the king as our father, the king of kings as our father. Not only that, though, we also have one another as brothers and sisters. We're family. Not all families get along. One thing I've noticed is this. It doesn't mean we're one and the same. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Is there racial, national, physical distinction in the church? Yes. Is there different personalities, different cultural upbringings? Yes, and to all that I say, I think it's okay and it's even good because it describes the creative God that we have. It's beautiful. Why? Because it's not about uniformity, it's about unity, right? It's not about division, it's about diversity. And it's all for the glory of a great and creative and redemptive God. So that is the result that we get. One nation, fellow citizens with the saints, one family, members of the household of God. And finally, he goes on to talk about a whole structure, one structure. And I love how it's kind of building up because citizens can be divided. We see it in our own country. Families can be separated. You probably have that experience as well. But parts of a building are inseparably linked. I want to show you an example of a really old building, a building I've been to many times over living in Paris, and it's the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Uh, really interesting. It, it was built uh, over time from 1163 to 1345, so a little less than two centuries to be built. But that's not the end of it. So imagine all the generations that came and gone of architects and builders that all participated in building this place. But that was the medieval age. Then years passed, and in the 1700s, it was renovated to have more of a Baroque kind of style. Then in 1789, 
It was vandalized during the French Revolution and some windows broke and so they had to repair those and they, they looked a little bit different than they originally did. In 1831, there was a Gothic restoration as times went and, and came and went. In 1989, they had an old altar and they replaced it with a more contemporary one. And then not to mention, you guys are aware of the fire that recently happened in 2019, so all the renovations that have been happening since then. But listen, all these stones throughout history, all these generations, they were formed, they, they were all formed to make one place that was meant for worship. I say meant for worship because unfortunately that place sadly has lost its purpose. It's more of a tourist attraction. Why? Because they forgot what was essential, the cornerstone. I love this, this uh, saying in Latin, ubi Christus ibi ecclesia, which means where Christ is, there is the church. So as I'm landing, landing the plane, I want to talk to you about God's building project. As we look at the structure, God's building project. And as I'm doing that, you're going to see we're recapping kind of everything we said this morning. Because step one is demolition. And that's what, that's what happened. It's what we were. We were all born dead in our sins. We were all equally dependent on grace. We had all these walls coming up and down. And what God did is he broke down the barriers of sin, put it all on the same level ground. No, you may have had a history uh, being part of the people of God. You may have done sacrifices. It doesn't matter anymore. It's all brought to the level of the foot of the cross. We're all on that same level now. So that first part was so important. What we were, we were far from God, separated, far and near. It doesn't matter. He preached to both, and we were all brought near to the, to the, to the cross. Demolition was the first step. That is our entry level into new life. We can only come through the cross, everyone. Second step is reconstruction. It's what Christ did. And we keep on reading. Verse 20, he's talking about, uh, Paul talks about uh, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's referring to the word of God. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The, the word, Jesus is the word. John chapter one, the word and even not only is he the word, he, it, the word reveals Jesus. I mean, from cover to cover. I, I love how Alistair Begg says this. He says, in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the Acts, Jesus is preached. In the Epistles, Jesus is explained. And in Revelation, Jesus is expected. And so the foundation, now that we've demolished everything, brought everything to the whole same level of the cross, we come through Christ the foundation being God's word, Jesus, the cornerstone. What is the cornerstone? It's the first stone. It's the most important stone, especially in antiquity. It was the principal stone at the corner around which the construction in antiquity was achieved. It was, at that time, the only way uh, to assure structural integrity for any building, the cornerstone. So anyone who builds on anything other than Christ, it's not gonna stand, it's not gonna hold. Christ is the cornerstone on which we, the living stones, are being added. And I want you to notice the tense in that, being added. Verse 21 says, In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's this idea that it's a process all throughout the years, but also all throughout your life. It's a process. We learn and grow. God is building his church and he isn't finished. And all we need to care about is that we are being built on Christ, the solid 
rock, on the foundation of his word. And we, it will be, we will be part of that big, beautiful construction. And it won't look like a pile of dirty, misplaced stones. That's what the church is. A church is, a, how do you determine who is the church? It's anybody built on Christ. It's any church built on Christ, joined together. And, and this idea of joining together here at the end, it's really pointing to what we're going to be seeing over the next couple of weeks where we talk about unity and, and this church joined, joined together, when it is joined together, it will be unstoppable. I'm reminded of a, of a cartoon strip I saw of uh, uh, Linus. You know, you guys know Linus. He's watching uh, TV and uh, enters Lucy. And if you guys know who she is, she's a little, she can be a little bossy. And she just comes in right away and says, change the channel. So Linus, little Linus, you know, with his little blanket, he, he's like, well, what makes you think you can make me? Right, his, his last effort to defend himself. And she looks right at him and says, these five fingers, um, individually, they are nothing, but curl them together, and they are a weapon terrible to behold. <laughs> and uh, Linus looks up at her and says, um, which channel is that again? <laughs> and so uh, he goes walking away, and as he's walking away, he says, man, why can't you guys get organized like that? And I think it's, it's interesting because a lot of times, you know, sometimes even we may be, we may be fighting and we're, we're fighting the wrong enemy. We're fighting the wrong enemy. We, we don't fight against uh, uh, flesh and blood. We fight against the principalities of this world. We're actually going to see this. At the end of the book, that's what Paul says, Ephesians 6. He talks about that. Why can't you guys get organized like that, Jesus is saying. So we need to be unified because that is God's desire. This is what you were without. But now in Christ Guess what? I reconciled you to me and to each other. Now the result I want is that you are unified, that you are one family, that you are uh, one nation, that you are one structure. And so as I build you, my son, my daughter, as I build you, my church, my project is demolition. It comes through the cross. Reconstruction is what I did. And you got to make sure that you are built on me and no one else. On Christ the solid rock, I stand. But then the result will be unity. So as I call the band, we see this word joined together, but I'm not finished yet. There's one more step. One more step in God's building project. We read, joined together that grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In other words, what it it is building is not some random structure. What he's building is the dwelling place of God himself. Step three is habitation. God moves in. Any temple that's, that was built in the past, it was really interesting to see as you read in Scripture in the Old Testament, they would build it, they would follow all the instructions, but it wasn't finished until they inaugurated it, and when they did, it says that the, the presence of God would fill it, would fill the temple, and that's when the building project was complete. And so maybe what's lacking in your life, because we're talking to the church like, as a whole, but also individually, We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so do we have the Holy Spirit living in us? Has God moved in? He no longer dwells in temples or cathedrals or nice vintage modern buildings like this. That's not the church. These are all made by men. He lives in the hearts of those who put their faith in him. As we read in verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the question I have for us this morning is, are you his dwelling place? Another way I could ask it is this, has God moved in yet? It's interesting because when I ask this question, sometimes I I like to 
in an order to rehearse my message and make sure that it's, I'm living it, um, I'll record myself, and, and during the week I might listen to it. And so uh, I was listening to it um, a couple days ago, driving my kids to school, and uh, our youngest daughter, Maddie, she's so sensitive to, to God, to the Spirit, and I had no idea, but she was actually listening intently. And as, I got, as the recording got to that question, has God moved in yet? All of a sudden I hear in the back seat, yes. And I was moved by that. Because that faith like a child is sometimes what we lack. Faith like a child. It's not complicated. Has God moved in yet? Yes, I know. Like I have no doubt where, where she stands. It wasn't something to please daddy or mommy. It's in her. And that's what, that's what we need. Maybe you're here and you know that you're, you're, part of, you're in that problem of being without. Or maybe it's not that you're without, but you're living too much for yourself. You're, not, you're being like the people of Israel at that time that was, uh, instead of being um, a light to the world, is being a little too much like the world. And you want to stop that. What do you do? You turn. You turn away. You ask forgiveness you repent, and then you believe. You trust. You trust that God has moved in. Yes, he's moved in, no doubt. And so I want to give that opportunity to you guys if, if that's something that you want to do this morning as a, as a way of just making it clear for you. We're going to have prayer teams at the end of the service. And just, just come and, and just say what you need prayer for. And we'd like to just pray with you and kind of consolidate uh, your decision this morning. Just allow God to conform you because what ends up happening, whether you've been far away from God or, uh, and you need to come back or you've never heard before or you're just needing to, to tweak some things, what it is, is a journey. Allow God to conform you to the image of his son. Remember, it's growing into a holy temple. It's being built into God's dwelling place. It's a journey. But the beauty of it is that when we, when we reach that point where we, where we get to step three in habitation and God has all the room, we make room for him. When that happens, whether individually or even just corporately as a church, now we get to be, uh, we get to be into part two of God's plan. It's carrying the good news of the gospel. What is the gospel? That Jesus succeeded in his great peace mission and that it is available to all. So let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your love for us even before we knew you. Your love for all humanity that you had a plan all along through your chosen people to show examples over and over. And thank you, Lord, because you extend that grace now to everyone. The entryway is available to all at the foot of the cross if we would just open up our heart and understand that no accomplishments, no, um, no uh, cultural heritages, none of that makes us any better. We are all brought to the same level and we all have one door to go through and that is through the cross, through repentance. We all have to go through that. So I pray, Lord, that we understand that, that as you demolish the strongholds in our life and the thoughts and the ideas in our life that we may even be better than, that that will just be destroyed now. And we could just enter in humbly, Lord, through Christ, through what your son did for us, Father. 
Thank you for reconciling us to you, first of all, making it possible for us to be reconciled with one another. And Lord, that we may be growing more and more now. Lord, just unified in you. We may be a little different. We may think a little different. And it's all part of your master plan of just gathering your children uh, to you, Lord, and, and uh, being glorified in and through us, Lord. And we just thank you, uh, Lord, for uh, just your plan from the beginning, Lord, uh, to, to unite us, uh, to reconcile us, Lord. And so we, uh, uh, we, we want to continue to be, Lord, now that, that witness. Lord, we want help us be that light, Lord, now uh, to those around us, Lord, because you are still building your church and there is still work to do, Lord. And so now we just rejoice this morning that we are the house of the Lord, uh, that, that, that the Holy Spirit living in us is what makes that dwelling place. And Lord, we just pray that that fire will burn in us even more as we leave this building, leave this, uh, this building and the building, uh, you know, we'll close this afternoon. It'll be on again tomorrow with the cafe, but, but we continue to be lights all around, all around this city, Lord, uh, that we can just be bearers and carriers of that great news of the, the mission of peace that you provided for us, that only you could provide for us. What another uh, reason to rejoice in, in this richness uh, of your love for us. We love you, God. We worship you. And we, we just uh, thank you because what we were now, what we were was in the past. Now we are, Lord, uh, rich in you. And we are um, uh, now unified in you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Thanks for hanging out with us at Generation. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Generation Pensacola or go to the website at generationpensacola.com and from wherever you download your podcasts. If today's teaching impacted you, we'd love to hear about it. So please drop us a note.